Hey everyone, welcome to this conversation with Leon S. Brenner, the author of this book, The Autistic Subject on the Threshold of Language, in which he makes a case that autism is not um, a pathology, but rather is a subjective structure or a mode of being, to use a Heideggerian term. Uh, it was a delightful and soul-edifying conversation. Uh, Leon was very cordial and open to sharing and expounding on this rather difficult concepts at times, but also, paradoxically, some of these ideas delineated by Lacan and the Lacanians can be close, quite close to, to our hearts and the human condition. Uh, in this episode, we discussed, um, obviously, autism, and then the uh, different subject, subjective structures uh, outlined by Freud and Lacan, neurosis, perversion, um, and psychosis. And then we discuss what it means to be a human subject. Well, how do we experience this world and how are we uh, creatures or subjects of language? Leon was also kind enough to agree to come on for a follow-up conversation to discuss some more of the uh, technical aspects of this book pertaining to uh, foreclosure, autism, and psychosis. But before I get carried away, a bit of a formal introduction. Dr. Leonis Brenner is a psychoanalyst and psychoanalytical theorist. His work focuses on the integration of philosophical and linguistic frameworks in the psychoanalytic theory of subjectivity and the understanding of the relationship between culture and psychopathology. He is a co-founder of Unconscious Berlin, and his latest book on the psychoanalysis of autism is called, as I did mention, The Autistic Subject on the Threshold of Language, where he presents a novel account of autistic subjectivity from a Lacanian psychoanalytic perspective. Having said that, without further ado, here's my conversation with Leonis Brenner. I'll probably start off with a really uh, general, and if I may, a rather personal question, Leon. Um, mm -hmm. What got you interested in psychoanalysis and in particular, uh, Lacanian psychoanalysis? Mm -hmm. Well, I've I've uh, I've been asked this question uh, many times in the past, um, and you know so, sometimes I answer it honestly. So let's do it today as well. Uh, um, I got into Lacan by accident. Uh, I was very much into Freud. Uh, even uh, growing up, I was interested in in psychoanalysis, but uh, put it to the side at some point and went into the field of psychology. And at a certain moment in my uh, studies, I well forgot to uh, pay tuition. Uh, there was a little logistical issue. I couldn't get the courses that I wanted. Uh, I was very much into, um, let's say, uh, phenomenology or existential psych psychology and uh, to uh, thinkers like uh, Melo-Ponty and... Uh, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre, and uh, I was very much uh, interested in studying that further. But I forgot to pay tuition. The courses were closed. They were shut uh, full. I couldn't then uh, register to these courses. And there was one course that nobody took, was completely open, um, a course about Lacan. I didn't know who he was at the time. A complete accident and uh, I met the professor that would be my supervisor later on and um, yeah you know they say from that moment on my life has changed uh, completely uh, basically everything that I do today has to do with psychoanalysis and with Lacan and Freud so it's a lucky coincidence one might say 
if things would have been a little different, we might have been talking about Melo-Ponti and the phenomenology of perception or something like that today. So that's quite interesting. Uh, if if we could perhaps juxtapose the phenomenologists like Mary Smollett-Ponti or Lacan, why is it that you wrote a book on Lacan, given that you already had exposure to the existentialists? And what in particular did you find, uh, let's say, different in Lacan compared to all these other thinkers from, in fact, the same milieu in France in, in that time, isn't it? Well, uh, I'll, I'll say what I found different. Yes, not what is different. Oh, uh, Because maybe I don't yeah. know about that. Uh, for me, it was the fact that um, I did not understand, but yet I was in a way satisfied studying uh, Lacan. So I think that uh, my studies prior to getting into uh, the Lacanian orientation and uh, the teaching of Lacan was an, an intellectual experience where one consumes knowledge and is then satisfied um, by uh, the understandings, uh, people call it grokking or some some kind of fathoming of the, of fathoming of the idea. And with Lacan, I was not understanding, but I kept on coming back and investing more and more time, investing more and more of my uh, my uh, resources to study it further. I've discovered a new form of of satisfaction mm, in his teaching, and he and Lacan is very um, uh, explicit about this fact that he doesn't write. Uh, for people to understand, he writes so that people will read. Uh, and I think this is what I discovered at that point. I couldn't really put it in the words at that point. But today, I think this is the difference between these philosophers like uh, Melo-Ponty and uh, I spoke about Sartre, um, which I think are profound and very interesting, uh, have wrote profound, very interesting works. Um, but with Lacan, I think what I discovered is something that is not philosophy uh, and a certain satisfaction that comes with uh, with practicing it, be it as a, as a student, be it as an analysant, be it as a teacher or an analyst eventually. Yeah. Uh, so, sorry, then, what exactly do you mean by Lacan is not his his teachings is not a philosophy. Is this more like in the Alain Bajou sense that he's an anti-philosopher? Or do you mean mm. more in the sense that uh, Lacanianism is in fact more practice than some kind of academic discipline? Yes, um, that's a very good question. And you've mentioned Bajou, uh, who, who's a philosopher that I really, really love. I really love his work. Um, recently, I've been working on the subject of love uh, through from the prism of Badiou's philosophy. Um, uh, yes, so so Badiou speaks of Lacan as an anti-philosopher, Badiou also says something interesting. He says that no contemporary philosopher um, can claim to be contemporary without in some way engaging with Lacan's ideas. Um, but when I say that uh, Lacan's teaching is not a philosophy, I mean something a bit different. Uh, first of all, I mean that it is not um, a structured, consistent body of knowledge that uh, presupposes a certain totality. 
This means that, first of all, that you can read Lacan's early teaching, middle teaching, late teaching, uh, and you won't necessarily uh, find the consistency that you will in works of other philosophers, um, let's say, other philosophers like those that we mentioned, even philosophers that change their mind at a certain point, engage with their previous work in order to clarify what, how did they develop their body of thought. Philosophers search for a truth that is, um, one might say, um, universal. It is um, a truth forever. It is the end of philosophy or, um, or the understanding of politics. Uh, but for uh, Lacan, there is no end to knowledge. Knowledge doesn't stop producing itself. There is no point uh, that is, uh, let's say, more universal than the other. And for Lacan, psychoanalysis changes then. So philosophy and philosophers, they aim at a theory that will sort of close up uh, a certain domain. Whereas psychoanalysis is just uh, a praxis that engages with a certain point in, in the let's say, uh, a certain point in the history of, of, of society and um, the way it, it manifests in, in one's unconscious. So in this sense, uh, we might say that Lacan's uh, psychoanalysis or, or teaching is not a philosophy, is not an ontology. It is not about what is. It is more about an ethics. It is an ethics, an ethics of a praxis how one should practice if one wants to do something, do with this object that Freud discovered uh, that is called the unconscious. And I think this is the, distinct, the distinction with, that we can make at this point between these two fields. It's a great segue because, uh, Leon, I've been thinking, you know, a lot, a lot of, let's, let's say, psychiatry or more um, CBD-driven approaches uh, I want to kind of get into more of the clinical, like I want to ask you what your views are on contemporary forms of therapy, more coming more from a Kenyan perspective. But before that, I've been wondering, so what insights, let's say, or how does Lacanian psychoanalysis differ from something like, uh, let's call it the, the, the scientific epistemology, which kind of presupposes that there's a truth out there and that we need to know this truth like an absolute truth, so to speak. So how does mm. how does Lacanian psychoanalysis differ from that? Um, well, I, I want to say the philosophy of Lacanian psychoanalysis, but you said it really isn't a philosophy in that sense. So let's say that the praxis of Lacanian psychoanalysis differ from uh, the epistemology of science. Mm -hmm. Yes, this is a very, a very important point that uh, um, Freud's, stresses or implies very early on in his uh, career in the early 1900s, where he insists that uh, psychoanalytic schools will not be part of the hospital or the university. He was very adamant to uh, say that psychoanalysts should train themselves. Uh, they shouldn't be trained in, in you know, uh, in, in the university circles, hmm? something that is not the case today, hmm? well, at least outside of the Lacanian orientation. Um, and this is, I think, due to the fact, maybe we, we, we can say this before I, I, I put forward my argument, um, that um, a science 
is defined by its object. So you would define different sciences, but by the object of their study. And in this sense, uh, I think that what Freud was um, implying is that the object of psychoanalysis has nothing to do uh, with the object of, let's say, scientific medicine or psychiatry or what we call today uh, psychology. And this is, uh, this is uh, important to stress for several reasons. Um, first, uh, it seems to me that studies like psychiatry and uh, well empirical psychology today um, address an object that they attempt to uncover to examine to find the right words to describe and then using these words to invent methods that could tame it could uncover it could um, let's say if we're speaking about um, what is called in in, in uh, psychological terms a, a psychiatric disorder, a mental disorder, then these discourses, these scientific discourses come to understand it and find a way to eradicate it. So you see a certain assumption that there is a subject and there is an illness, which is the object of psychiatry, and psychiatrists, they study this illness, they understand it, and through that, they can manipulate it, handle it, and let's say, excise it from the subject, leaving uh, the healthy subject intact. So it, it is, um, there is so much epistemology uh, behind this, and um, I recommend to your listeners uh, to read uh, Michel Foucault's uh, History of Madness in order to learn more about the way uh, the historical development of this particular perspective that we see today. Uh, now, psychoanalysis is, at least the Freudian psychoanalysis, is, is nothing of that sort. And this is because the object of psychoanalysis is uh, exactly an object that is, by definition, uh, let's say, uh, an object that escapes any attempt for uh, mastery. It is the unconscious. And here we have to make a distinction and also maybe distance ourselves a little bit from uh, the Jungian quotes that we see on social media many times that say, uh, well, uh, until one, one has to make the unconscious conscious and then something will happen. But here we see a certain betrayal of, of the maybe essential idea behind the unconscious. It is by itself an entity that is um, that resists any attempt for objectification, any attempt to understand, to put our fingers on it. It is never it because it is unconscious. It is not the preconscious. It is not. It is something that uh, exists from the get go, from the beginning as an excluded, as something that is, is excluded. And the object of psychoanalysis is this object. And this means that unlike psychiatry, unlike these sciences, psychoanalysis is not a discourse that attempts to provide us with mastery over the world. Uh, at least, again, um, I'd say those who ethically practice psychoanalysis uh, would not um, presume that they have mastered 
the world um, through their analysis, through their training analysis. You know, there are many analysts that think that uh, through their analysis, they now have a, a mastery over the unconscious. No? And this is why they can teach other people how to engage with, uh, with their um, neurosis. Um, but I think that Freud was very clear that there is no uh, way to cure oneself from their unconscious complexes. You can position yourself in a certain way. You can work through and uh, alter the uh, um, repercussions of this particular positioning in relation to the unconscious, but there is no mastery over it. And uh, I might I might give an example. Um, this is something that I've heard. I think it was uh, uh, Jacques Alain Miller was saying it at some point. Um, and uh, and Lacan has a name for it. Uh, one uh, in in the end of an analysis, one is duped by the unconscious. One does not get rid of it. One is duped by it in the sense that, and this is what uh, Miller has said, one wakes up in the morning with a certain song in their mind and um, and continues humming it uh, in, in sort of a delightful way, um, giving it uh, its, uh, let's say, its place. Huh? It is not a nothing. On the other hand, it is not a, a, an everything, hmm? but it is something that you allow yourself to sort of be duped by. Hmm? And I think this is why uh, psychoanalysis is something that's very much different than these scientific fields, exactly because it does not produce healthy uh, subjects, so-called healthy subjects. Hmm? Yeah, it's interesting, um, Leon. Uh, I mean, look, if I was a union, I'd probably call this synchronicity. But just yesterday, one of the biggest mm -hmm. podcasts, perhaps now in like the world of neuroscience and psychology, uh, have you heard of Andrew Huberman? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. He uh, he just released an episode on autism, and so obviously oh. you your book on autism. And in in, in this episode, it says uh, autism. Uh, what's the cure for autism? So it obviously presupposes that autism is a pathology. Whereas obviously you in from the get go you state very clearly that autism is not a pathology. Uh, and I found that quite interesting. Given you were going to have this conversation today, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's interesting. Yeah. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. Uh, or Leon, on, on that note, I would like to kind of, you know, delve a bit deeper into the clinical account. Now, honestly, uh, yeah. one of my main interests from reading your work uh, was, in fact, language, the Lacanian mm -hmm. language. So I would love to spend a lot of time discussing that. But since we're here, uh, again, um, uh, forgive me if this is a rather naive question, but I feel like it's quite important. Um, what? How does Lacanian psychoanalysis differ from the more contemporary, let's say, pop forms of therapy that are more, you know, ego psychology driven or, or CBT uh, inspired? What, what or another way of asking that is, uh, in contrast to, um, again, contemporary forms of therapy, um, what's the purpose of Lacanian psychoanalysis uh, for an analysis? Yeah, this is a, a question we could spend uh, a few sessions going over. Yes, of course, I'd say like uh, yes, uh, so much. There is so much uh, to discuss here. Uh, but, you know, let's let's try and think about it in terms that uh, Lacan presents in, in the late uh, 50s. 
where he speaks about his um, his his uh, his method in terms of its tactics, its strategy, and its politics. So I'll say that they differ in all of these. Huh? Uh, they differ in the way that the an analyst, in the tactics, in the ways that the therapist or the analyst might engage with the patient or analysand, what one would say, hmm? how one would say it. Hmm? Uh, and again, because we're starting, uh, we're taking small steps, so I'll just say some commonsensical things right now, no need to to really get into the complexities uh, at this point, unless you'll you'll take me there, yeah, and I'll follow you. Um, so, in terms of of interpretations, uh, psychologists they give a lot of advice. Mm -hmm. uh, they tell you what they think is important for you, or what is the way to be happy. So, uh, in this sense, uh, the Kenyan psychoanalyst would never. Uh, intervene for the sake of happiness or the good or the good advice huh? so this is something you will not hear in in an Lacanian analysis um, these type of interpretations that I think um, are extremely dominant in these fields that you've mentioned uh, have an effect I think of closing up one's associations rather than opening them up so, for instance, saying to someone, um, and this is something that many people ask me to do, you are autistic. You are autistic, and this is why you behave this way. Oh, okay, that's it. Hmm? Uh, whereas an interpretation in, in, in a Lacanian analysis would never aim to put an end to your association. Yeah? It is always a question of what, what else, maybe not this, but what otherwise. Hmm? Uh, so that's in level of tactics and level of strategy. And this means how one positions themselves in the analysis, in the long run, not the tactical interventions that we're speaking about, but the strategy of the positioning of what many psychologists call the, um, how would they call it? The, uh, not the situation, the, um, I forget, um, but there's a name for sort of how the how one should sit and how one should and how the room should look like and there's sort of a and I, the setting the setting right so one uh, thinks about producing these as as though they're sort of they're the sort of the long term long run strategy where they where this will take us um, in uh, in let's say in, in, in I think in these psi practices. Um, the strategy uh, is maybe, uh, let's say, uh, aiming at a cure, um, aiming at a relationship, uh, aiming at, um, I don't know, particular goals. Um, but in psychoanalysis, we have no uh, particular goals other than handling the transference. And this means that for psychoanalysis, strategy is just the question of the positioning within the transference. This has to do with diagnosis and has to do with autism, as I write in my book, because when I say autism, I mean a different positioning within the transference, a different work within the transference. So in Lacanian analysis, we make great effort um, not to fall into a 
position within the transference that is one that you would find, let's say, outside of the practice with a good friend, with a mentor, with uh, a coach, with a teacher, but uh, find a different positioning uh, that cannot be reduced into what we usually call a relationship. So we aim against a relationship. And finally, in terms of politics, and this has to do with, um, let's say, the end, you know, the what will happen in the end, yes, uh, like, like Marxist politics, they have a certain end to them. Uh, so this is the question, what does psychoanalysis aim to do? And uh, again, as I was saying, in, in the psych practices, there are particular aims, uh, if it is uh, solving a particular problem, or as we see in the, uh, it, which is very common in, in the US, the idea of happiness. Um, we don't see that in, in the politics of Lacanian psychoanalysis. We never promise a cure. Uh, we don't consider the question of the good. Um, in an analysis, it is more of uh, a relationship to truth that is interesting uh, for us. And in this sense, the analyst doesn't desire the good of the patient, the cure of the patient, or any particular thing for the patient. Uh, so the politics of, of psychoanalysis for Lacan hinge on this notion of a desire that belongs to the analyst that is completely amorphous. It is something like the unconscious because nothing can be put in its place that, that will satisfy it. So it is a desire, we might say, for pure difference, for something that is completely singular, something that is singular to be articulated, to be said, and then to have an effect. So mean I mean to be deployed in one's life. So this might be the goal of psychoanalysis for uh, Lacanian analysts. And as you see, there is no one solution for everyone. It is a case-by-case -case perspective. Hey, uh, Leon, is it possible for us to kind of uh, flesh out a bit more on the concept of transference? Uh, you are, in fact, the second uh, psychoanalyst that I've, I've spoken to. Uh, and I, I have to admit, I'm still trying to understand what the role of transference is in in in, in Lacanian psychoanalysis, especially given that it's a it's a key key concept. I do, and correct me if I'm wrong here, please. I do know it it connects to the idea of love uh, in, mm. in transference. Uh, so mm. that would be the first part uh, of the question, uh, and, and and the second part is I'm wondering if. Uh, uh, you know what, maybe, maybe we'll, we'll, we'll go with the transference one first and after that I'll ask the other one, because the other one's more of a sociological uh, question. Uh, so sorry that I'm going all over the place, but yes, uh, on transference. Yeah, so you've said it, you know, transference is basically, as Freud says, uh, he calls it transference love. Hmm? Um, and as I hope you know, uh, love is transformative. Hmm? It um, creates a certain cut in one's life uh, and following it sometimes, today it's a bit more difficult, I hear uh, from, uh, from many analysis, 
uh, particularly here in Berlin, this is what they say, yes. Um, but I hear it's a bit more difficult, but um, it, is a, it is a transformative force in someone's life. So this is why Freud found uh, transference to be a motor for force of the analytic, uh, uh, the, the, the analytic work. You know, transference is not something that is uh, uh, reserved to the analytic uh, cell. It happens in the bar. You go out, you see this lovely person on the other side of the bar. They have this look. And maybe I'll be associating a little bit here. They have this look. Ah, we spoke about the French existentialists. So you say, oh, uh, this must be a French existentialist. You look at how they smoke their cigarettes and you say, oh, yes. When we when we go out, um, we will then talk about Sartre on their balcony hmm? and uh, have a, a glass of uh, of wine, of white wine. You you, you start fantasizing. Hmm? Um, we might say that this is transference at work. Hmm? You go and you speak to them, and then you find out that they're in fact an idiot. Yeah, and usually this is how how things end. But let's say you have a good date. Hmm? And, uh, you know, people have a good date. What do you do on a date? Let's say you usually talk. You tell stories which are aimed to impress, but are mostly dumb. Uh, and, well, as being words by themselves, they, they would remain at a certain level and not have any effect on your life. But sometimes you have a good date and you come back home. And something on the level of the body is worked up something that is even we can call it something insane it doesn't make sense but it's strong it's very strong it works you up and then people say oh yes i'm in love or they say oh i have a crush today this is the the way uh, we call it and this kind of explanation well puts it a little down it relaxes you you're not going insane it's it's that and then you might um, continue dating this person and then things will truly go insane if you choose to live uh, your life together but you see this is a complete change in one's life beyond one's narcissism uh, so it means building a life together with another which is not you necessarily not you does not fit into your fantasy structure and if you, if you do acknowledge this difference, if you do acknowledge this uh, radical difference, then I say you are, you are in fact uh, wagering on your love. And if you wager on this love in order to build a life together, then I say this is the transformation that you might have. A similar thing in structure happens in an analysis. But the difference is that the analyst like Socrates, who says in the uh, in the uh, in Plato's Symposium, Socrates says, "Look, I don't know anything about anything, but we know this from earlier dialogues in Plato." But he says something in the in the Symposium that is very interesting. Socrates says, "I don't know anything about anything, except for matters of love. I know something about love." So psycho the psychoanalyst also knows something about love, uh, knows enough in order to position themselves not as the one who answers it and this is what i hope your lover would do because this is how you would uh, create a love a life together but the analyst doesn't 
um, answer the demand for love, uh, but always engages with it, handles it, keeps it burning. Uh, this is the the profession, huh? Keeps it burning so that one will continue speaking and trying to say something about it. Because, and I'll end with this point, um, and again, we're speaking about Lacan today, so I'll, I'll remain with Lacan. You know, Lacan says that in love, one gives what they do not have. And this is because the lover uh, identifies something in the beloved, this uh, unique, um, un unbelievable object that has to do uh, with them. So they believe it is in the beloved, all the while, this thing, this object has to do with their unconscious, with their unconscious fantasies, unconscious formations, but they believe that the other has it. They have to believe it, otherwise there will be no love. Hmm? So uh, what, uh, what, uh, the what the analyst does through handling the transference is getting the analysis to keep on speaking about that thing. Hmm? But that thing has to do with their own unconscious. And one does it more and more and more until within this love relationship, it is not anymore about uh, how um, interesting the analyst is, how insightful uh, their interpretations are, but it is uh, about this object. And one comes every week, and let's say that one becomes an analyst at this point, one comes every week to speak about it. Hmm? And at a certain point, we've spoken enough, and then uh, something, uh, the effect that we aim at uh, is something on the level of the body, like I was saying. Hmm? A certain change, a certain shift, uh, in psychoanalytic terms, we say on the level of the drive, hmm? things that kept on repeating, kept on insisting, hmm? and things that kept on, let's say, uh, repeating but in a way that one does not even notice uh, these repetitions they continue but one is situated within this cycle in a different way and then the analyst is not important anymore and this is a huge difference for instance in relation to let's say relational psychoanalysis or relational psychology where it is about the analyst's person and when the analysis has to end, and I hope, I, I, I think that analyses have to end. I don't think that they should continue forever. So for us, for Lacanians, then the analyst is like yesterday's news, can be discarded, no need anymore. But on the other hand, let's say in more relational approaches, and you see that in this little documentary, I don't know if you've seen this documentary uh, on Netflix uh, with, um, I don't remember the name of the actor. Jonah Hill? Yeah, exactly, yeah. Jonah. I, I have. In fact, I, uh, I'm i sure you've come across as I saw a really good critique of that documentary uh, by some Lacanians. Uh, really? Oh, so you have to send that to me because I was going to write something about it as well. But I'll just, I'll just say that you see there that even when their work ended, it could not have ended. He came back. Hmm? He couldn't come back as a patient anymore, so he made everything in his capacity to come back and see this person because it is about this person. But for uh, for for I think psychoanalysts, it's it, let's say practice ethically, it is not about the person. 
it is about that thing uh, that one gives but does not have in love. Hmm? Yeah. Uh, although it's quite interesting, Leon, because I, I don't know if you recall, but in one conversation that you had, uh, this was, uh, forgive me, I can't pronounce the person's name. It's a very difficult name to pronounce. So I'm just going to read the title of the uh, talk. Uh, it's called Lacanian Perspectives on Capitalism and its Impact <laughs> on Human Suffering. Uh, it was a brilliant with Stein Van Hulle, of course, yes. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah, <laughs> couldn't pronounce that name. Um, I believe in that in that conversation you said uh, that the uh, Lacanian psychoanalyst plays the role of a saint, um, <laughs> and uh, yes. I think that was a rather interesting comment. I, I I I don't I don't know if it was you. I think I believe it was you who made the comment, and that got me thinking. So correct me if I'm wrong here. My understanding was that in some sense, uh, in no way is the purpose of Lacanian psychoanalysis, uh, Lacanian psychoanalysis to, to make the uh, an analysand uh, adjust or fit into the social order, be it neoliberalism or capitalism or whatever may be the case. But rather in some sense, the, uh, the analyst has to always sit somewhat outside the social order, regardless of what it is. Um, so I'm, 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 this was going to be my like follow-up question to your previous uh uh, comments on kind of um, ego psychology and and, and whatnot. Um, can you um, yeah expound that what you meant by the idea that the the psychoanalyst plays the role of a saint in society? Uh, yes, you know now we're jumping to Lacan's very very late teaching. So so far we've been speaking about the fifties something like that, and you were speaking about the seventies. Now he was speaking about this. He was saying this in his. Uh, television interview uh, called television so you can read this it's a very difficult text and uh, Lacan says that uh, the analyst takes the position of the saint and he elaborates that on several levels and, and there are several levels that we can can speak about that um, I'll mention two um, first of all in terms of handling uh, the transference in contemporary society where capitalism and the capitalist discourse is so dominant. Um, Lacan was saying this later in his career where, where that was really uh, starting to be the reality. And, you know, in, in capitalist discourse, what, what, capitalism functions by um, subjugating the subject's desire uh, within the... Uh, uh, within capitalist production. So this means that capitalism finds ways to reduce desire into objects of demand. So you'll see that uh, if you go and buy a new iPhone, uh, that uh, prior to this purchase, something about your being, this is what I, I hear, yes, something about your being was, will be very focused about this, up, this coming uh, purchase. Up to a point, uh, one would say, even uh, to a point of a religious experience, huh? here it is, now I will finally be satisfied. Now I will finally uh, be able to breathe, uh, not to suffer from the malaise of, 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 of the demands of the social order. And this is how capitalism works. Everything is objectified. 
And we see that in the clinic as well, where analysis come and they demand a diagnosis, for instance, or they demand a particular solution to a particular problem. I have this problem, solve it for me. Why am I here if you're not giving me advice? What are you doing uh, not uh, answering my questions that are very clear about the thing that I want to change? People come to receive a product. This is very similar in the world of love. Apropos, if we already talked about it, you know, with the dating apps, there's a certain idea that one can reduce into objective coordinates this thing that is utterly coincidental the encounter. So if I say, oh, I want someone who looks like this, who like, who reads these books, and uh, then I will surely be in love. There's a certain idea that one can objectify exactly something that is utterly unobjectifiable. The analyst is a saint, um, first of all, in the sense that, well, they well don't take this, um, uh, this um, uh, cycle so seriously. Uh, they laugh, um, let's say, uh, instead of uh, being so uh, set on and serious about purchasing an iPhone, they have a different sort of relationship with this uh, cycle of, of production. And again, this does not mean, I think, that one is a, is a sort of abandons uh, the domain of goods, huh? but one takes a, a certain distance from it. Um, uh, for instance, you know, Lacan was not uh, a, a saint. Uh, he he collected uh, sports cars and uh, had a lot, a lot of money in his uh, drawer in his uh, in his clinic. Uh, but this is a certain relationship that I think he refers to in relation to this cycle of of uh, objectification. And the final thing, and this has to do with some play of words, and maybe we won't get into this today. The saint, you said the saint is someone that is sort of outside. Um, and this position has to do with what Lacan would later call the objet petit a, the object a, um, which is exactly a placeholder. It is a, 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 a kernel of lack rather than something that is positively designated. The analyst is situated all, always in that place, in that place where nothing can be said that will encapsulate it. And here we speak about the analyst's uh, desire. And uh, there's a, um, an artistic metaphor that Lacan gives us that I think is, is fantastic. Um, I think this is Leonardo da Vinci's um, uh, St. John the Baptist. I'll have to, we'll have to check, but there's a, there's a particular painting where uh, we see him pointing at a certain place in midair with a certain smile, sort of insinuating, here, but what is it? He knows something. There is something that he knows, and he's pointing somewhere, but what is it? So I think that Lacan is sort of referring to being in that position of the object A as something that sort of, it pushes through the transference, it, it seduces the the analysis into engaging with this what this is with this x hmm? uh, and saying something about it without saying anything about it yourself you found that image i did yes do you want me to share it um, I'll, I'll put an overlay anyway for the listeners 
So is it uh, is it Leonardo da Vinci? Indeed. Yeah. Uh, let me just show you the. You're talking about this one, right? Uh -huh. Yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. You see him with this sort of the face that insinuates something that is on of the level of desire, of the level of even the body. Something is is he's 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 insinuating something like that, pointing, but to where? What is that? This is, I think, um, a saint, saintliness. I think that uh, Lacan in his later teaching associates with the position of the analyst in the transference. Beautiful, beautiful. Uh, yeah, as, as I said, I'll put an overlay so that the viewer can, if, if for, the, for the viewers of the podcast, they can kind of uh, look at that while you're describing it. Um, I want to be cognizant of the time, uh, Leon, so I'd love to get into, because I want to discuss your book too. But before that, uh, the part I sort of love most about your work is your uh, your your teachings on uh, the Lacanian perspective on language. So I kind of want to ask from you what the kind of the meta psychology of Lacan uh, tells us about human subjectivity apropos language. And if I may, uh, I want to read out a short excerpt from your book. If, if, is that okay? Just on the topic of language. Uh, uh -huh. So. On uh, page 215, you say uh, the autistic subjects, in, in this case, uh, have, there's no other as language for them. But then in the introduction, there's this really good excerpt that you you, you give, uh, which I love, to be honest. It says, yeah, according to Lacan, language precedes the existence of an individual in the sense that if, if it exists before he or she is born and subsists after his or her death, as Fink emphasizes in his book, The Lacanian Subject, before a child is born, he or she is already endowed uh, with a name as well as assigned with the personality, all of which are imagined by his or her uh, parents through their, use of, through their use of signifiers. These signifiers used to endow the child with an existence in language are not uniquely invented by the parents, but are acquired from a symbolic order that has been accumulating for centuries preceding his or her conception. This system of signifiers is governed by a set of laws and is determined determined by Lacan as the other of language. And I was I was thinking, uh, if anyone needs uh, kind of some kind of motivation to read more Lacan, this excerpt itself should be good enough, especially if you are interested in. Philosophy. Uh, so, Leon, what's what does Lacan have to say about language, and why, in particular, is language so important, or I would say crucial, uh, for Lacanian psychoanalysis? Mm -hmm. um, yes, you know, it's it is language that is important, uh, and I'll just say it here. But it is it is the way that language. Uh, impacts the body which is at stake so we have to remember that but let's get to it maybe uh, when we continue and i'll just i'll just try and say this commonsensically there's a certain idea um, that we might simplify by saying that um when we look at uh, let's say or organisms like humans um we clearly notice that uh, our existence has a certain continuity to it, to it. 
Um, many philosophers tried to think about this, and I think uh, John Locke uh, had a certain idea of, of sort of a, a string of consciousness, as long as the same consciousness remains there, so that I can say, I was here three months ago, it's still me, uh, then we, we say, oh, there's a certain identity to this um, prolonged experience. Um, but even prior to this question, in order to conceive of a certain continuation, uh, a certain, let's say, relationship between what one experienced at point A and one, what one experiences today, uh, we have to assume that something is, let's say, inscribed somewhere. I'll give you an example, a very simple one. Let's say um, a camera uh, has a lens and has some film. Now, if we take out the film, the camera, the lens will still see the world. The photons will still go through it. So things will be, let's say, uh, perceived in the world. But in order for there to be a memory or to, sit, to have a certain uh, testimony to that thing that happened, we need a film. We need something to be written. So language uh, for me, and I think for Lacan, is this very essential thing. It is whatever is used to write, to inscribe. So in this sense, it is not the English language or the Farsi language or the uh, China, uh, Japanese language. It is uh, whatever means one uses in order to inscribe something that remains. So it could be just something like this. Uh, we speak about it in many ways. Uh, psychiatrists speak about it as sort of neural, neuronal connections. It is a writing in the flesh. So this is language. Now, why language is so important for humans? And this is something that Lacan already says in his paper on the mirror state. It's a very early paper. And he says, look, human beings are born um, underdeveloped. They're born half-baked. And you see it in comparison to other animals, uh, some of which are born and just uh, start uh, roaming the world. Uh, if we speak about, I don't know, insects or lizards or stuff like that, uh, but also mammals. You know, if you look at mammals, they are born, they can start walking, they can start sniffing, many of them. So when we think about the organism and sort of the hardwired level of the instinct, for many animals, this, these instincts are sufficient for them to exist in a world, in their world, uh, from the moment of birth. But for humans, this is not the case. Our instincts, all the things that we are born with instinctually, are completely insufficient for our survival in the beginning. A baby cannot do anything, basically. And without the caretaker, there will not be any uh, chance for survival. So, you know, we say that the baby is, uh, is uh, in the womb, let's say, the baby has a need and these needs are answered. But as soon as the baby is born, it might be hungry, it might be, I don't know, it might need a diaper change, but this does not happen automatically, immediately. So we say that after birth, there is necessarily a certain lack that is presented in the child's libidinal economy. Something is needed, but is not satisfied. Let's say mommy is at the toilet, daddy is not here, the child is hungry. Now the child is not fed immediately. What the child has to do 
is to take on itself a certain uh, representation that is linguistic and address it to an other person. Mm? So this is the cry. Mm? So the baby cries and then the parent starts to, to uh, guess uh, what is at stake and then maybe the baby is fed. Uh, but what you see here is the fact that language is necessary in order to, um, let's say, compensate for this inherent inborn gap between the level of the instinct and the world for the human baby. Humans are born into a reality where our instinct, instincts and our, let's say, reality, our human reality, the humanized world, are in a complete um, uh, separation. There is a schism. And the only way to connect them, to gain access to this world, is by addressing an other using a language that is not mine. This language is used to inscribe something in this gap between the instinctual level and the humanized world. And let's say this inscription and the way that language is used to inscribe uh, is uh, what we might identify in the clinic as a clinical structure. So everyone relies on language to attempt to compensate for an inherent gap, an inherent schism, an inherent split in every human's existence. And we use language in different ways in order to compensate for it. No one is able to bridge this gap. There is no one that, you know, lives in nirvana, sadly, uh, you know, in a place where it is true. The, the inner world and the environment are in complete unicity. There is no such thing, only in our fantasies. Hmm? So everyone uses language in a different way to do it. And what Freud was identifying, I think, in his beginning of his work is these particular ways that people use language in order to compensate. And he was saying, look at this. This is the neurotic way to compensate for this inherent schism in, in human existence. This is the psychotic way to compensate for this inherent schism. And what I argue in my book is that there is an autistic way to compensate for this inherent schism. I go to great lengths to describe it uh, because I think it is very different from uh, the neurotic and psychotic way. And uh, I say that it is different to such an extent that it necessitates a different uh, clinical approach. And this is why I say that autism is distinct, is a distinct structure. Well, because I'm basically saying when we work with uh, these with particular subjects that compensate for the schism using language in a particular way, we have to situate ourselves in the transference in a different way. Hmm? All right, this is an excellent segue, uh, Leon, but the problem is, unfortunately, we are short, short for time. So forgive me for rushing you with this, but I I think in the forward and in the introduction itself, you you, you basically claim, of course, as you, as you highlighted, uh, the kind of the subjective structures that Freud and Lacan identified was uh, neurosis, perversion, and psychosis. And then in the book, you you posit that autism, you say, is not a, a pathology, but a mode of being. So again, I know we're short of short for time, but <laughs> uh, if you could sort of maybe give us a, a prelude, because obviously to get an understanding of that, 
you got to read the book, but uh, a very elementary prelude as to what you mean by firstly, a mode of being, and then why you claim that uh, autism is a another mode of being on top of the ones identified by Freud and Lacan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So first, let me say, uh, Rahul, uh, that I don't know, you can see if uh, your listeners are interested in our talk or you yourself, uh, and we can schedule another meeting if I'd you want to continue. Grateful. I'd be yeah. very grateful. Yes. I, I, want to ask, I want to ask you about uh, foreclosure and particularly mm -hmm. where you highlight the difference between a psychotic foreclosure and autistic foreclosure. And I don't think we'll have time today for that. So maybe this could be just an introduction and I'd be yeah. very uh, reschedule another talk uh, another another conversation <laughs> sure sure so that's that's I put this on the table so we won't be too stressed uh, for yeah. time okay thank you so um yeah I give this uh, this idea of a mode of being um borrowing this from the uh, phen phenomenologists of course this kind of term uh, but I use it a bit differently in the in the book and this is the idea that um, one's uh, particular use of language in order to compensate for this the inherent schism hmm, between the inner world and the humanized world um, is for me a mode of being. It is a mode of existence because we find our existence in language. As you were saying and you were quoting from the book, one is does not only find their meaning, let's say, in this kind of um, uh, Satrian way, you know, existence prior to meaning, uh, that you are born and then you find who you are or whatever your your goals or or um, aims are at your life. Um, we see with with you is this uh, expert that you brought is that one is born already endowed with meaning already determined by language and um, we say it's a name it's these projections that the parents might have on a baby even before it is born uh, today we have this sonogram we have this sonogram and these uh, images of the baby in the womb people already start having their fantasies about even their face structure hmm? Uh, we know if they're a boy or a girl, one has already uh, meanings that are stuck to them before they're born. Um, and um, so one, we, we say one becomes human, one subjectifies, one uh, is situated in the humanized world through their use of language, through their relationship with this language that is alien, that is outside of them that exists prior and will exist um, after. Uh, now, this particular use of language is a mode of existence because it situates us in the world, in the social world, in our body, in, uh, in relationship with other people in the world, in relationship with our own ego. Mm -hmm. uh, so language is the, the, the mode through which one becomes. Mm -hmm. And then uh, neurosis is one of these modes. And I argue that psychosis and perversion uh, are also these modes. But my point is, and this is where I think maybe this mode of being steps away from 
the Heideggerian Dasein, you know, this this mode of 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 being that that Heidegger speaks about, um, is that I'll be a little blunt. Uh, for me, everyone is developmentally disordered. You know, they 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 say that autism is a developmental disorder. This is how it's uh, determined. But if you follow Freud, everyone is necessarily developmentally disordered. Um, Freud speaks about the fixation of the drives. So the drives are these things that sort of determine our pleasure and suffering. And he says that at a certain point in one's life, they're fixated and they stop developing. He uses these, these words. They are stopped in the middle of their development and then they continue in the same way, which is not a proper way. It is just a way that keeps on functioning. So everyone is, in a sense, developmentally disordered. We are born split with this inherent schism that is unmendable we use language to compensate for it and as we do something in the development of our let's say of the of the drives of these um, things that move us that color the world that make it make the world uh, basically uh, objects exist in the world when they are invested with libido they don't exist when they are not invested. So basically, this means that the world stops developing in this sense. Uh, so everyone, the neurotic, the psychotic, the perverse, and the autistic are all developmentally disordered. And this is why each of these perspectives are, let's say, a mode of being. They're an attitude in relation to reality. They're, they're a, a way to do with language. When I say then that they are distinct, then I don't make here some kind of an ontological argument. And this is something it's important to clarify. I don't mean that here's Woody Allen, he's neurotic. Here's Daniel Schreber from Freud's case, he's psychotic. And here's, um, I don't know, Temple Grandin, she's autistic. Um, I mean that there are different ways to do with language and these necessitate our uh, uh, attention uh, as analysts and it means that working with this particular subject that has this particular way of doing with language will dictate situating myself in the transference in such and such a way and making such and such interventions. And with the psychotic subject, that will not be the case. Because if I will do, if I will position myself in the same way, that could be catastrophic. For instance, this is something, uh, again, it's not a real example, it's just to clarify my point. So with a neurotic, it's important not to answer one's demands for love many times. And this also means that you know, you sometimes go on vacation and you don't really say, look, I'm, I'm sorry, but I have to go and continue. You say, I'm going. We see each other in two weeks. Well, let's set a date. Good. Okay. With the psychotic subject, you will not do that because there is a risk for, let's say, a paranoid thoughts. Where is he going? Is he staying home? Will he be here? Is he seeing other people? Is he actually going to follow me and not tell me? 
So, you know, with a psychotic, I would say, I'm going for two weeks. I will be here. This is my email. You can contact me. I'll be available between these and these hours. I'll come back on Tuesday and we meet immediately on Wednesday. And you can write to me if there's a problem and we can uh, reschedule, etc. So you see that there's a, a different way one engages with even the logistical level of, hand, of, of handling and analysis. So this manifests itself on all the other levels. So what I'm saying when I'm saying that autism is a distinct uh, mode of being is I'm saying that one needs to handle an analysis under the uh, hypothesis of autism in a way that is different than the one that we would do, different that we would do in a, when there is a hypothesis of psychosis, perversion, and, and neurosis. So, Leon, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. When you say that you aren't making any ontological claims, is what you mean? Um, okay. So, for instance, I think it was uh, Temple Grandin in the book you you quote um, her in in many times. Uh, I think she says, uh, "If my autism is quote unquote cured." then I won't exist as an individual. Uh, so in some sense, it seems, uh, and this is not just autistic subjects, but let's say all subjects in, in general tend to over-identify with their subjective structure. So they kind of, they derive their identity, uh, either I'm autistic or I'm a neurotic, I'm a psychotic. So when you say um, that you're not, you're not trying to make an ontological claim, is that your way of saying that, oh, it's at the end of the day, still the the analysts and the analyst hand will have an individual relationship, and you will the the analyst hand will be treated as an individual, not particularly as this this object in some category or some some ontological box. Let's say. Mm -hmm. Yes, I, this is true on on these two levels that I think I heard in in what you're saying. First of all, that autism for me is not an identity. It is not something that we would say, well, it is just this particular type of ego identification. Although it does exist in the world as being that, you see many celebrities identifying as autistic because it, it has become somewhat of an identity of a commodity even. And one uh, identifies with it and receives a certain position within the social order and even sometimes uh, cultural capital. You know, today being autistic is not something that is uh, uh, like like in the old days uh, would be seen, would be frowned upon, exactly. Uh, um, so for me, autism is not an identity when I speak about it, it psychoanalytically. Yes, of course, it is also an identity. But when I speak about it, I speak about it as a way of doing with language. So autism is a unique way of doing with language. And in this sense, um, it is not an ontology. It is something about a praxis, something about a doing, not something about a, 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 a having, a having of an identity. Um, and the second uh, has to do with... The fact that, again, it has to do with what I was mentioning earlier, um, that, and according to this, we, I don't view autism as, let's say, this list of traits or list of problematic behaviors. Some people, you know, in the, in the DSM, you'll see this list of, of behaviors. And, um, and, and let's say this is autism. And in psychotherapy, you come and you treat these behaviors and you try and sort of 
cure them or handle them or change them. So we sort of try and cure the autism. We engage with the autism uh, psychotherapeutically. This is not my view, yes, that psychotherapeutically we engage with autism and attempt to, to create some type of effect on it. Um, as I was saying, uh, autism for me is the attempt at cure in itself. Uh, everyone is born into this world uh, in a way that is problematic. It is always a bit shitty, if not much shitty to exist. And we make do with it, we do with it, we don't cure it. And one makes do with this problem um, using language in a particular way. So autism is an attempt to make do with this world. So one does not engage with autistic phenomena trying to change them. Autism is the way to compensate for uh, this schism in one's, uh, in one's existence. It is a practice of human existence. It is a way of, of existing as a human uh, by doing with language. So in this sense, I don't think that autism is a category that people find in the world. This person is autistic, that person is autistic. It is something that is in a, in a state of, well, it is a, an action. It is a state of becoming. It is a, a state, it is an attempt of at existing. And in this sense, we don't try to cure it. We don't try to alter it. We try to see how one can become autistic basically, how can one can be autistic, can exist in this way, using whatever, you know, identities, uh, ideas, identifications that might work. So, for example, maybe being a bit, uh, I don't think that's outlandish, but, but maybe at face value, one might see a successful analysis for let's say working ethically on through the coordinates of autism in the transference when analysis when one in the end does not identify as being autistic at all one can identify as being gender fluid i'm just giving an example it doesn't matter it's not about these identities doing an analysis as an autistic person is not about identifying with whatever identities society provides us today. It is about finding a way to exist, finding a way to exist using the means that you have taken on yourself uh, in order to exist. Yeah, yeah. Um, perhaps this is a beautiful place to uh, conclude only, to, only so that we can follow up hopefully in another conversation, Leon, but I'd say uh, it's like a broader point. One one way I kind of felt quite liberated re uh, reading Lacan and Lacanians was by what you said before that life is shit, <laughs> you know that. And I get this sense of jouissance, in to use a Lacanian term, by firstly acknowledging the fact that life is shit, and then trying to figure out how to deal with this this lack ontological split, whatever you may call it, and then we keep going on and on forever. Uh, kind of obsessively uh, 
And uh, I, I think I prefer that a whole lot more than this um, idea of there's a cure, there's a there's a solution and to like a, a neuronic state. You know, there's a quote from Zizek, uh, uh, you mentioned him, so we'll mention him again. He says that, uh, well, in analysis, it's not about uh, finding yourself, understanding yourself, and then being happy with whoever you are. It is about discovering the most horrific and horrible parts of yourself and finding the best way to get the hell out of there, to, yeah. to take a distance from it hmm, so that you can continue living uh, without, you know, uh, killing yourself, for example. Hmm? Uh, so, yeah, there's a certain there's a certain anti um, uh, anti religious religiosity. I think in in Lacanian psychoanalysis, uh, although Lacan insists that the religion also always exists in a re repressed way, but at least uh, not in the ethics of psychoanalysis. So psychoanalysts in Lacanian orientation are not priests. They're, they're saints. saints, yes, but they're not priests. Yes. Thank you. That's a great place to, uh, I think, conclude at least this conversation. I'm really grateful for it. Yeah, my pleasure. My pleasure.